Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Our scripture reading this morning is come, comes from Haggai 2, verses 1 to 23. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to, met, to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. 
I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Please be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is beautiful and rich and travels across time to speak to us this morning in exactly the way we need to hear it. So give us ears, Lord. The problem is not with your word. The problem is with us. Give us hearts to receive, hands and feet to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is also Jake, and Happy New Year. It is good to be with you this morning. Everyone, or almost everyone, is a runner on January 1st. It's true. If you go to the seawall, some of you are shaking your heads. Maybe not you, but everyone else is a runner on January 1st. As we turn the calendar to a new year, many of us have set our sights on new goals and new disciplines, right? Maybe even new acts of obedience to the Lord. We've committed ourselves to turning over a new leaf, and we've come out of the gate with a bang. Everybody's a runner on January 1st. My experience has been, I'll make this about me and not you, my experience has been, however, that while I'm great at beginnings, I'm actually really good at beginning things, fantastic at beginning things, I am not so great at the continuings, the finishings, the persisting with things. There are not as many runners, again, on the seawall on January 15th. And I bring my struggles to you this morning not just in the hope that you might relate, but because the phenomenon of failed New Year's Eve resolutions is one that speaks directly to our text this morning, directly to Haggai chapter 2. As we continue in Haggai, we left off last week having seen these people recently returned from exile receiving a hard word from the prophet Haggai. Namely, these people have the wrong priorities. They've got the wrong priorities. Their homes over God's house, the temple. And the temple, of course, is not just some building. It was this physical signpost of their devotion to Yahweh. And they're prioritizing themselves over the Lord. And in condemning the misplaced priorities of the people, Haggai also reveals that the fruit of their disobedience is that Yahweh has called for a comprehensive drought on the people from top to bottom. Ironically, in seeking to preserve and to establish and to build their lives, Yahweh has taken their livelihood away from them and their wellness away from them. But we ended chapter 1 on a hopeful note. The people fear the Lord, they repent, and by the Spirit begin working on the house of the Lord of hosts. If Haggai chapter 1 is a movie, it has that happy ending that we're looking for. And it's nice, and there's a bow on it, and we can all go out of the theater with smiles. But as we come to chapter 2, we find that not a month removed 
from their returning to work on the temple, the people are discouraged. Discouraged. Everyone was an eager builder on the fourth day of the sixth month, but by the 21st day of the seventh month, eagerness had turned to discouragement, excitement to despair. As we conclude our time in Haggai this morning, we're going to be looking at really two months in the life of God's people, just two brief months in the history of Israel. Two months where they experienced the whole gamut, the whole variety of discouragement. This morning, I want us to highlight what those discouragements are, knowing that we will encounter each one of them this year, and show you how in Jesus he speaks directly to them. So very simply, three points. Here's how we're going to look at our text this morning. Haggai chapter 2. Unmet expectations, unclean hands, an unshakable kingdom. So first, unmet expectations. You have your Bible open, Haggai chapter 2. Keep your finger there. We'll be going back and forth to that passage. Haggai 2 does not begin by saying uh, explicitly these people are discouraged. It doesn't begin that way. Rather, we get a glimpse into the state of at least some in this exilic community through Haggai's prophetic word. By the Lord, Haggai asks this question in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house, this, this temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? In 586 BC, Solomon's temple was destroyed. Burned to the ground. And oh, what a temple it was. The temple that Solomon built was, was glorious. Uh, it was comprised of materials from around the known world. The best of each thing, they brought it from that place. And so cypress and cedar from Lebanon, other sorts of fancy woods, I wouldn't even know what they are now. Right? Gold from around the world filled the inside of the temple. Even the, the furnishings were fancy. Everything was glorious, and it corresponded to Israel's apex as a nation in the world. It was a glorious temple in a glorious day in Israel's history. But when Babylon rolled into town, and they did roll into town, like I said, they burned it to the ground. They raised it to its foundation. They completely destroyed it and hauled off all of the gold as loot back to Babylon. And so the people, there would be some among them now in Haggai's day who would have witnessed the glory of the former temple. They would have been old, quite old by now. It was over 60 years ago. But there were some senior citizens in their midst who would have remembered what those days were like. Still, there would have been some younger people having heard the stories from their grandparents and their parents about this glorious temple who would have had in their mind just how amazing things were, just how beautiful that temple was. And comparatively, the new temple doesn't quite stack up. Instead of importing fancy lumber and skilled craftsmen, the remnant is told in Haggai 1 verse 8, this is so funny, at least to me, not to them probably, to go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. It's not cedar from Lebanon. It's wood from over there. Go into your backyard and that wood will do. 
It's not skilled craftsmen being brought in for this specialty job. It's you build the house. You and YouTube. Right? See how that works out for you. And the different shows. The people can see it in the temple. They are understandably discouraged. Haggai's phrase, look back at Haggai 2. Haggai's phrase, is it not as nothing in your eyes could be said like this, it, the temple, and nothing, are they not identical in your sight? The temple and nothing, are they not identical in your sight? Compared to the people's expectations, compared to what they had known in the past, their current work feels like nothingness. Feels like meaninglessness. Their mood could be formulated in a question of their own. Why even bother? Why, why keep on going? What they are experiencing is the discouragement of unmet expectations. And in a world of social media facades, where we're constantly being told that we can have it all right away, is that not a discouragement that we're quite familiar with? Unmet expectations, right? I, I want a, a cordial family game night beside a roaring fire where my four boys are sitting perfectly up, like upright and their hands are in their lap and they're just like praying for their brothers in between their turns, you know? And, and what do I get? Like WrestleMania instead, right? <laughs> right? And then my own impatience, my own anger, my, my, my own sin. I want to have done this thing by now, seen that wonder of the world by this age, felt those things in that exact moment I was supposed to, and instead all we're left with is seemingly something less. The normal, the mundane, wood from over those hills, craftsmanship of questionable quality. What, what does Haggai have to say to those of us who are experiencing the disappointment of unmet expectations? Well, first thing is this. He would remind us of the words the Lord spoke to Joshua and to so many of his people through the ages. Ready? Very simple word. He says, be strong. Be strong. Three times. Be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people in the land. Persist in work. Keep on going. Be strong. How? He says, in my strength. Haggai 2, verse 4. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. It's the same encouraging word we left Haggai chapter 1 with. Work, for I am with you. I've not abandoned you. Sometimes the discouragement we have from unmet expectations is not because we have unrealistic or idealistic expectations, but sometimes, oftentimes, it's because we want a good thing. Something the Bible even tells us to seek after. And instead, we get a not quite as good thing. Or a bad thing. Or even an evil thing. 
And, and the Bible does not say, well, pretend like that bad thing's actually a good thing. Just trick yourself. And, and the Bible does not say, well, just uh, pretend like that half as good thing is, is really great. No, God begins by saying to all of us in this place of feeling discouraged by unmet expectations, I'm with you in that discouragement. I see you. It does not escape my sight. It is not beyond me. I'm with you. I love you. And the pain of unmet expectations here this Christ city is not evidence of his absence. It's not. Second thing Haggai would say. Haggai would point us to his contemporary, his fellow prophet Zechariah, who was preaching around the same time. And he would urge us not to despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. In Zechariah chapter 4, we have Zechariah speaking to the mood of the people in Jerusalem of the moment. And he says in Zechariah chapter 4 that though this is a day of despising small things, there's coming a greater, more glorious day. So don't despise the day of small things. Compared to the previous temple, this temple is small potatoes, insignificant, or a blip on your otherwise impeccable resume. We do well to remind ourselves that while God is God of the big, he's also God of the small. I ran across this article this week by this author named Scott Hubbard, and I think he put it really well when he writes, Christians worship a big God with a big mission that will one day reach this whole big world. And that's true. Yet for all his bigness, our God has a remarkable love for the small. He sets his eye upon small people in small places during small moments. The Son of God, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, even became small to save us. And then he says this, I think this is really insightful. Yet some of us, for one reason or another, embrace the bigness of God and his mission without likewise embracing his love for the small. And then finding ourselves unable to escape the small. We can begin to chafe and mutter. We are big dreamers, hemmed in, behind and before by a small job, small church, small town, small life. 5% of this year will consist of the big, if that. That's generous. 95% of this year will consist of the small. Small acts of kindness Small acts of faithfulness and steadfastness that go unnoticed. Small moments when we decide not to gratify the flesh, but to honor the Lord. Small apologies made repeatedly throughout our small days. Small, everyday, occasionally stinky acts. See, when we despise the day of small things, whether we know it or not, we betray a certain pride or arrogance. These things are beneath us. These moments beneath me. 
forgetting that we human beings in the cosmic scope of things are very, very, very small. I, I came across this graphic this week. It'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, the, the big circle is a star. Again, I'm, this is not my specialty, so if something's wrong here, you can just tell me afterwards if you're like an astronomy person. But the big circle, I'm told, to someone who knows about these things, uh, is Arcturus. Then there's a smaller star named Pollux. And then there's a smaller star named Sirius. And then finally, the, 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 the small circle right there is our sun. And then you can't see it because the font's really small. But it says Jupiter is about one pixel in size. So Jupiter, the biggest planet in our solar system, like this is Jupiter in the cosmic scale of things, comparatively. On this scale, Earth is invisible. North America, beyond invisible. Your house, beyond, beyond invisible. You, almost non-existent. You can understand David's astonishment when he says in Psalm 8, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which we have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? That you even think of us. And the son of man that you care for him. And so listen. The gospel tells us that Jesus is God who became small like us. Proving once and for all that God is mindful of even us. If God is not too big who is over all of that. If God is not too big for the cosmically invisible then how are we too big for the very real, very seen, very small things before us? Third thing. The Lord, through Haggai, says to a discouraged by unmet expectations people, he says, watch me. Watch me. Watch what I do with the small. Watch what I do with the invisible. Watch what I do with the thing that everybody else ignores. Watch me, he says. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, soon, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's just stop there for a second. Did you hear what Jacob said about our Advent giving campaign? Isn't that true? We said $150,000 for this ministry on the downtown east side. The Lord said, no, it's all mine. I'm going to give you more. We're experiencing this. Like, we're living this. Don't miss that. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Don't miss that. Keep on reading. Verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place... I will give peace. When the Bible talks about peace in the Old Testament, it's always looking ahead to like a future consummated peace, a shalom, a wholeness, a future day. If Jerusalem no longer has the political clout and wealth to hire craftsmen to purchase fine materials, no problem, says the Lord, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll shake the world in such a way that you won't need to ask. It'll just come to you. 
After all, again, verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And so guess what? Guess what? God, God, God does it. God does it, Andrea. He does it. We know from Ezra 6 that Darius would make a decree ordering nations to build this temple and essentially pay for this temple to be built. God does it. We know that Herod the Great, under Roman rule, and his successors would lavish the temple with gold and with wealth. God is taking the wealth at each stage of history, from the Persians and then the Romans, to lavish this temple because he said so, because he would do it. But the glory with which the Lord intends to fill this temple exceeds material glory, exceeds gold, exceeds cedar and fine craftsmanship. After all, even at its highest point, the, the second temple pales in comparison with Solomon's temple. No, no, the greater glory with which the Lord will fill the temple is fulfilled in Jesus. So go with me to Luke chapter 2. Almost 500 years, 500 years after the construction of this small, insignificant, lamentable temple, a small, insignificant baby is brought into this building. A small child is brought into this building. And there it says a man named Simeon recognized this baby, knew who he was. He saw in this baby the greater glory of which Haggai spoke. And so Simeon, he picks up this small, insignificant, newborn baby, like days old, and he holds him in his arm and he says these words in Luke 2, 29 to 32, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Listen to this language. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory, surpassing glory to your people Israel. As this child grows up, he will not mince words about his true identity about who he is and what he's come to do. In Matthew 12, Jesus, who is this child, become man, says, I tell you, what does he say? Something greater than the temple is here. From this one man, from his small, relatively obscure life, his gruesome and shameful death, comes God's kingdom. From his resurrection growing bigger, to our salvation growing bigger, to eventually at his return, the whole earth being filled with his glory. Like a little bit of leaven in the dough. Like a little mustard seed, this small, insignificant, almost ignorable thing grows huge into something that can't be ignored. What does Solomon's temple have on that? Right? What does Solomon's temple have on that? Be strong, Christ City. Don't despise the day of small things. And watch what God does with the seemingly insignificant. The next discouragement is this. Point number two, unclean hands. Go with me in your Bibles to Haggai 2, chapter 10. And just put your finger there. Two months have passed since Haggai's last prophecy. Two months. 
Haggai is very helpful in that it dates it all the way along. This time, however, Haggai's word does not come as a comfort to those who are discouraged. Rather, it discourages the people who don't yet know that they should be discouraged. It reveals to the people something that they weren't aware of, cognizant of. And it comes to the people and it comes to us through a curious illustration. Haggai begins, verse 11, look look there with me. He says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and says, and said, it does become unclean. In the Jewish world, maybe you know this, being clean and not clean was everything. If you were clean, your life could be full of purpose. If you were unclean, you were stuck on the outskirts until you could make yourself clean, until you could be whole again. And what this case study from the priests is intended to expose is that it is much easier to make something unclean or profane than it is to make something or someone clean or holy. Proximity to a consecrated or holy object did not make the surrounding items holy, but proximity to, close proximity to things like, I don't know, a dead body, was effective in making someone unclean. Uncleanliness or uncleanliness is pervasive, But holiness is evasive. All of which seems irrelevant. And you're like, oh, that's an interesting lesson from the Bible. Until we remind ourselves that what the people were working on, what these unclean people were touching with their hands, was the temple. And the altar in the temple. The place at which they were to offer their sacrifices. And the thing itself, because they're unclean, is now also unclean. And so Haggai says in verse 14, So it is with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. In my experience, the the discouragement that moves most quickly that comes to us most quickly on the heels of the discouragement of unmet expectations is the discouragement of having unclean hands. Or to put it another way, the discouragement we get when we come face to face with all the ways we don't measure up. When we fall short. In deeds done and deeds left undone. In thoughts said or thoughts that we should have said. What happens when the thing that is discouraging is not a matter of circumstances, but goes even deeper to a problem with ourselves? Goes all the way to our hearts. This must have been a tremendously discouraging word to the people. Having repented of their misplaced priorities, having heard just a few months prior, right, the comfort that Haggai had brought them in their unmet expectations, to now be told that their work was tainted by sin, It's discouraging, to say the least. And perhaps most immediately distressing 
was that this word has come to them in winter, in December. The people had sown in the rainy season of the fall in the hope that in accordance with their repentance, the Lord would bless the harvest. That what they would reap would not be weeds, but, 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 but grain and oil. The seed at this point in history, at this month, at this time, is not in the barn, but in the ground. And now, Haggai, you tell us our work is impure? Now, Haggai, you tell us that we have unclean hands? Maybe Haggai's audience is angry. Maybe Haggai's audience feels cheated. Maybe they feel like they've earned the abundance and blessing that's supposed to be coming their way. Have you ever felt like this? I know I have. There is this thing that happens when we follow Jesus. We begin with a very real sense that we are very big sinners who very much need God's mercy and love. And then he changes us. Slowly, over time, he changes us. He gives us his spirit, and we begin to repent, to, to turn from what we did before. What's more, we begin to act like new people. We begin to do stuff for God, participate in God's mission. At first, just out of gratitude for what he's done for us. But then, slowly but surely, we forget why we're doing it. Over time, the script flips. Having once seen ourselves entirely indebted to God's mercy and grace, we now, having accumulated years, even decades, of good deeds, of much sacrifice, we think God perhaps even a little indebted to us. So we think that while new believers or those who need Jesus may operate on his grace, we've evolved, us seasoned vets, to merit. Sure, we got a hand up. Sure, we got some initial boosting. But we are where we are now because we did it. And the unfortunate truth about getting to that place is that it is tremendously fragile, isn't it? Having replaced God's grace with our works as a foundation for our lives, the whole structure stands and falls according to our good deeds. If we can keep being good, if we can keep doing good, if we just do good. So what happens when we're confronted with our own unclean hands, with the depth of our depravity? We collapse. The whole thing comes crumbling down. From top to bottom then, beginning to end, we need God's grace. When our impurity and our insincerity overwhelm us, we need God's grace. And the good news is, he gives it. Quite inexplicably, verse 19 ends almost abruptly and strangely. Did, did, you, did you catch how, how verse 19 ends? It just ends like this. So the Lord says all these things, he says, you've been unfaithful, you, you did not turn to me. And then verse 19 ends, but from this day on I will bless you. Why? Why? Just as God's people were dependent upon God's grace then, so too are we dependent on his grace today. 
The hope to this discouragement of unclean hands in our lives is once more found in Jesus. It's seeing that just as Jesus is the truer and better temple, so too does Jesus do for us what the law never could. So if you were to go in your Bible to Matthew 5 to 7, you find the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've heard of it before. It's Jesus interpreting for us, fulfilling for us the law, and showing us this is what the law means. And after Jesus shows us the law, fulfilled in him, in Matthew 8, it begins like this. It says, Jesus reached out his hand to a man. And not just any man, but do you know who the man was? A leper. An unclean man. And what happens in that moment? Is Jesus made unclean? Is Jesus rendered useless? His work rendered useless? No. What happens? Jesus reaches out, he touches the man, and what happens? The man is made clean. And do you see the reversal here? What the law could not do, Jesus fulfills in his ministry. Jesus touches and is not made unclean, but makes us clean. Makes us whole. Washes away our sins. However you've come this morning, you're a Christian, you're exploring, you're antagonistic. My plea with you is that you would build your life on the firm foundation of God's grace. His mercy. That you would not have to endure the despair and the discouragement that comes with the inevitable reckoning we all must make with our own depravity our own failures, our own shortcomings, but that you would find shelter and security and a firm foundation in God and in his grace. Speaking about a firm foundation, to our last point we go, and we're almost done, Haggai. You did it. The book of Haggai, you now know it. You can tell it to your friends and show off. If that's cool anywhere. Last point, unshakable kingdom. Notice on the same day that Haggai gives a hard word about holiness, on the same day, in God's grace, he gives to the people his most encouraging word yet. His most exciting word yet. Let's read it in full. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, 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 governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. To, to most of us, God's kingdom feels distant and unattainable. We grasp then at kingdoms of our own making. We, like Haggai's people, prioritize our own home, our own initiatives, our own things, and we ignore the truer thing happening. We need a sure thing, we say to ourselves. I'm going to build that sure thing here. But Haggai reminds us this morning that what seems solid to us will be shaken. What seems unlikely to us is in fact inevitable. He says at the end of the age, God will shake the heavens and the earth. He will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. He will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. 
and overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. To Zerubbabel and the remnant who are listening to these words, it's intentionally familiar language. It's language that would invoke in them, in their minds, the story of God. At the Exodus, God has overthrown horse and riders, swallowed them up in the Red Sea. We start Exodus next week. Get ready for that. At Sodom and Gomorrah, kingdoms were overthrown, swallowed up by his judging fire. And just as God did to the Midianites, turning their swords against their own brothers, so will he do it again. In other words, God has done all these things. Why do you doubt he'll do it again? The author of Hebrews, who's one of the few New Testament authors to directly quote Haggai, sees Haggai's prophecy as drawing a line in the sand between two different kingdoms, two different worlds. Hebrews 12, listen to the preacher there. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Haggai 2, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things cannot be shaken may remain. Listen. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I don't know what fills your heart this January. It's typical in these months when there's lots of rain, and the weight of the new year, all has to be done, is maybe pressing in on you, and you're discouraged because your holidays weren't what they're supposed to be, that gratitude is the last thing on your lips. But if what Haggai is saying is true, if what the author of Hebrews is saying is true, therefore let us be grateful for receiving, and in Christ you have received it, you've already received it, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And how should we live? And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Christ City, here is my prayer for us this year. And as we head into a week of prayer and fasting where we intentionally seek the Lord as a people for the sake of this neighborhood, for the people here who don't know and love and worship Jesus, this year my prayer for you is that we would look to what is solid, what is firm, what we already have in Jesus that we would not run after perishable and shakeable things, but rest and enjoy and love and serve from that unshakable reality which is God's kingdom. I pray that we would pray with the psalmist in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. On that day, Haggai says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. So don't be surprised. Just as our hope in the midst of unmet expectations is found in Jesus being the greater temple, just as our hope for the washing of unclean hands is found in Jesus being greater than the law, so too is our hope for an unshakable kingdom found in Jesus being the greater king. The language of servant 
The language of a signet ring, this is messianic language. It's language of a Messiah, a Christ. Zerubbabel, we know, he will fade into obscurity. Outside of being mispronounced by millions of pastors through thousands of years, we will forget about him. He's mentioned in Zechariah, and then he doesn't come up again until when? Do you know? Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel. There we find Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, in a long list of names, culminating in, in, in Jesus, who, who is called the Christ. God's promise to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring was fulfilled in Jesus. Having previously said to another king, I'm taking my signet ring away from you, I'm taking my authority away from you, I'm now putting it back on you, Zerubbabel, to be fulfilled in one of your descendants. See, a signet ring was a sign of authority. The king would use it, or his representative would use it, to impress upon a document their seal, which said, the king said this, and the king is doing this. And because that was so powerful, it was worn like a ring. It was worn on the person of the person, sorry, it was worn on the person of the person in authority, in, in, in power. So if you had the signet ring of a king, you came with the authority of the king. Jesus then, the descendant of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, comes with the authority as God's servant to usher in an unshakable kingdom. So this is a good place to end. I think some of us this morning think that Jesus comes to us in our discouragement and says, there, there. Feel better. Here's a back rub. Like a spiritual back rub or something. Jesus does not just say, take heart, don't be discouraged, they're there. But Jesus says this, listen, just let the Holy Spirit grow in your heart a vision of who Jesus is. Jesus says, take heart, I the one who hold all authority, who is over all the cosmos, who is before all things, who have been with the Father and the Spirit in all of eternity, I have overcome the world. And I have come to usher in my kingdom. And that's already started and you can't stop it. Friends, we have no reason. I know we have reasons. But we have no reason to be discouraged in 2024. What we have in Christ cannot be taken from us. Jesus is with us this year. And we have everything we need in him. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, grow in our minds and in our hearts a more grand, a less domesticated vision of who you truly are. And where we have made you domesticated, Jesus, we repent. And we say we're sorry. And though you could come, and though you have every right to come to us and to wipe us off the face of the earth, we thank you and we worship you and we praise you that you come to us in kindness and in gentleness. As a small baby who can sympathize with all of our weakness and all of our discouragement, who made a way for us on the cross to be reconciled to you. Jesus, be glorified in our midst this year. We want nothing else but to follow you and to love you, and to know you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.